When investors look for clues to determine the underlying health of a company and whether or not it's worth investing in, they take a close look at its tax footnotes. And that's because the footnotes provide a level of detail that is not possible to find in the financial statements alone. If something like a high ETR, significant deferred tax liabilities, or large uncertain tax positions jump out within the tax footnote, for example, this might be a red flag for investors focused on the financials. For example, if there are major increases in deferred tax liabilities, as detailed in the tax footnote, the company is noting that these liabilities will eventually come due and result in future tax expense. If you're worried about raising those red flags yourself, don't worry. Today's episode of the Fiona Show Tax Provision Podcast is dedicated to making sure your tax footnote health stays top-notch. And to help us do it, I'd like to welcome back Cross-Border Solutions tax provision expert Howard Telson. Welcome back once again, Howard. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. So as noted, the topic of the day is the tax footnote. And as we dive into this specifically, in order to really understand what a tax footnote is and does, uh, why don't we take a step back and review what a financial statement is as a whole? And for those listeners who tuned into our very first episode, along with our episode on annual versus quarterly provisions, we begin to scratch the surface of financial statements there. But let's do a quick review at a high level, what is a financial statement? Yeah, so when we talk about financial statements, I think we need to differentiate between publicly traded companies and, and private companies, along with between U.S.-based companies and, and foreign-based companies. So for U.S.-based public companies, these type of companies file a Form 10-K on an annual or full-year basis and a Form 10-Q on a quarterly basis. And those U.S. public companies are really who we'll kind of hone in on today. So Form 10-K is an annual report for U.S. public companies, which is required by the SEC or the Securities and Exchange Commission, and really provides investors a summary of a company's financial performance for the year. So this 10-K is really a great resource to learn about a company, both just from a business perspective and then digging into their financials as well. It's just a wealth of information. And the way the financials are formatted and the way they work is that usually it starts with an overview of the business. So it'll provide a summary of the product lines or service offerings of a business. It'll give some details about their subsidiaries and kind of their organizational structure. And it also gets into the company's history, accounting policies, any recent transactions like acquisitions, dispositions. It talks about risk factors, legal proceedings. Like I said, just a great place to really learn about a company. And then following that kind of background, that informational component, Usually it dives into a section called MD&A or management discussion and analysis, which is a place where the management essentially gets to tell its story of the company and how it's performing, you know, how it's doing. And a big piece of that MD&A section, you know, at least as far as tax is concerned, which obviously is the focus here, is an area where management kind of explains what impacted their income tax position in, in kind of a material way what their rate drivers were, so what drove their ETR up or down, and then how did their effective tax rate change from quarter to quarter or year to year, kind of providing that trend analysis. So, so a lot of times, you know, with regards to tax, so that's, that's what will be the focus there is the rate and how it moved. So after that management discussion, then you get kind of to the meat of the 10K, which is really the financial statements, which is, as you could probably tell, they're so important that, you know, often people refer to the 10K and reports of that nature, whether it's in the U.S. or abroad, as simply financial statements in general. And the three key financial statements included are the income statement, the balance sheet, and the cash flow statement. That's kind of the, the core 
financial statements there, those three. And then after the financials kind of show these three statements, right, that income sheet, balance sheet, and cash flow statement, usually companies will provide kind of lengthy notes on each of them, which are, are kind of supplementary statements and schedules that break down all the numbers in the main schedules. So that at a whole is kind of the 10K or the annual side of the financial statements. And, and as for the 10Q, which is quarterly, uh, so the quarterly statements for U.S. public companies, that's a lot simpler and, and less detailed. And the interim reports, you know, as they call them, the, or the quarterly reports, they really only focus on the financials themselves. They do have an MD&A section as well, management discussion and analysis. They will disclose kind of key changes in accounting principles and other really important disclosures, but they don't have kind of the detailed footnotes and disclosures as in the annual. So I just wanted to make that distinction before we move any further between kind of quarterly and annual. And I know in another episode, we kind of delve further into quarterly as well. That's right. And and not too long ago, might I add. And before we get deeper into financials and the tax footnote specifically, you mentioned we'll focus on U.S. public companies. But can you give a quick overview of U.S. private companies and foreign companies and what their financial statements look like? Right. So... U.S. private companies and then foreign companies as well have obviously really similar financial statement filings to U.S. publicly traded companies, just at a high level. However, private companies' financials are much less detailed, and they're a lot less stringent in terms of requirements and format than U.S. public entities. So, and then on the other hand, like foreign companies' financials are, are honestly quite similar to the above as well. However, when we're talking about the foreign side, we are talking about a bit of a different standard. So foreign companies report under the accounting standard IFRS, so International Financial Reporting Standard, as opposed to U.S. GAAP, so U.S. Generally Accepted Accounting Principles. And then, you know, one other item to note for foreign companies is that they're generally not required to actually prepare quarterly financials under IFRS. Some individual countries, jurisdictions will require kind of quarterly filings, but it's not a requirement of IFRS. So a lot of countries, and most, I would say, foreign companies that, you know, that operate outside of the U.S. end up not really as concerned about quarterly filings, about quarterly tax provisions for this reason. So quarterly is usually more geared towards a U.S.-centric company. For some foreign companies still do complete financials on the quarters, and that would include the tax provision calculations as well, of course. But that's usually for internal or some other purpose, kind of outside of the regulatory requirements. So I think at a high level, that's kind of differentiation between U.S. public and then U.S. private and foreign. Key thing to note is U.S. public companies, a lot more detail basically than the others. And then, you know, foreign companies, it's really the, the difference in standard, right? IFRS versus, versus that U.S. gap. Right. And with that background today, let's focus on U.S. public companies' annual financial statements or the 10K. Folks interested in quarterly can tune into our annual versus quarterly episode for more information on that. But here we're going to home in on the annual and the financial statements themselves are very similar on quarterly, but the tax footnote on quarterly is much less detailed than the annual and sometimes doesn't even exist as it not always is required on a quarterly basis. So locking in on just the 10K, you mentioned the three core financial statements of the income statement, the balance sheet and the cash flow statement. Let's start with the income statement. What is this schedule? Yes, I think the income statement is a great place to start. And you may also hear this referred to as the profit and loss statement or, or P&L for short, but the P&L essentially represents the income and expenses of a company for a period of time. 
So when we're thinking about a 10K, this period of time is for the full year of a company. So that could be a calendar year, January 1st to December 31st, or it could be what is known as a fiscal year, which is essentially any period of time other than a calendar year. So companies could have their year end for financial purposes at really any point during the year. Most companies have a calendar year end, but other companies don't. And when we're talking about the 10K, it's for that annual period, whatever that financial period is. So it could be the calendar year or it could be some other period of time. And then what's important to note is here, when we're talking about the income statement, it presents that calendar year. So this particular calendar year that just occurred. And then it also presents the prior two years as well. So if we just take a quick example, if we're talking about a 2020 financial statement, which, you know, as we've talked about in previous episodes, is generally filed in early 2021. So if we're talking about a calendar year company with a 12-31-2020 year end, they would file those financials in January or February of 2021. So right after that 2020 year end. So on that 2020 financials, they would show the previous two years as well. So they would show 2020 and they would also show 2019 and 2018. So it's a comparison to show, you know, what changed over this period of time. How is it different this year versus the past? It's nice to have that kind of comparison, that baseline. And and what the schedule does as a whole is it includes a line or two for for revenue, typically. So, you know, what, what the company took in, their income. And then it includes lines for various expenses, you know, so all all the kind of outflows of a company, like cost of goods sold, salaries or wages, depreciation, rent, interest expense. It could be any of number of expenses here. And after you factor in the revenue and the various expenses, the schedule arrives at what's called income before income taxes, right? So we've spoken a little bit about this metric in the past, but it's often referred to as pre-tax book income. And after that line, after the pre-tax book income line, there's a line called provision for income taxes. And this line is, as we've spoken about, it's really the crux of the output of the tax provision calculation. And it's so fundamental to the output of the calculation that the whole calculation has taken on the name tax provision for the very reason that this line is referred to as the provision for income taxes. So this line item really represents the total provision. And, you know, we've talked about in the past as well, but it's essentially the sum of the current provision and deferred provision. That's kind of the key tax element of that income statement. And we'll get into the tax footnote shortly, but but this tax provision line is clearly a very high level number. It's not detailed. It's not really giving the user much detail on it. And the tax footnote, which we'll get to, basically serves to break this number down further and provide some more details surrounding what exactly makes it up. After we reduce the income before income taxes or or pre-tax book income by that provision for income taxes or tax provision, we get to net income. And this is really the earnings of a company and one of the most important numbers on the whole financial statement. And it's an item that investors are, are really keenly focused on and it will drive the price of the stock up if it kind of beats estimates or down if it falls short. So this is usually what people refer to as earning net income. So, so that's kind of the crux of the income statement. Start a revenue, you layer in your expenses, you get to that pre-tax book income, and then we layer out our income tax expense, and then we get to our net income. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. 
Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. The second schedule to cover is the balance sheet. Can you provide details surrounding this as well? The balance sheet gives the assets, liabilities, and shareholders' equity of a company at a particular moment in time. So the balance sheet is often referred to as a snapshot, given this concept of it being a point in time rather than a period of time, like the income statement. So in the case of the 10K, this particular moment in time is the last day of the year. So for a calendar year company, that would be December 31st. But for a fiscal year company, that could be any day, whenever their year end is. But for a calendar year company, it would be 1231. So in the balance sheet, usually the prior year is included. So the user of the financial statements can compare performance year over year, this year or last year. The income statement, as we mentioned, compares three years. However, the balance sheet you know, usually just compares the two. That's kind of the standard presentation utilized uh, for at least U.S. financial statements in particular. So on the balance sheet, there's various line items listed kind of in the assets section. And, and when we think about assets, we're talking about maybe cash, accounts receivable, property, inventory. And then we have the liability section. And here we're talking about things like accounts payable and debt. And then we have our shareholders equity section. And that shows the different types of stock of a company, like a common stock or preferred stock, and also shows retained earnings. So it's important to note that you have total assets, and that has to equal total liabilities plus shareholders equity. So that's where the schedule really gets its name. It has to balance. Assets have to equal liabilities plus shareholders equity. Now, when we talk about the tax provision, the output of the provision kind of manifests itself on the balance sheet in a couple different places. So generally, there's two main income tax accounts on the balance sheet. So one is income tax payable and, or receivable, and the other one is deferred income tax liability or deferred income tax asset, right? Deferred tax liability or deferred tax asset. So the income tax payable basically signifies that at this point in time, so you know, for example, on December 31st, 2020, the company owes a certain amount in income taxes. And that could be taxed out to the IRS, to a foreign taxing authority, or to US state and local taxing authorities. And most likely, it's honestly made up a mix of all three of those components, right? If you have a company kind of operating all over the place, all over the world, that income tax payable you know, or receivable is going to be a bit of a mix. And then what I just said was kind of focused on payable. It signifies at a point in time, if, you, if you're underpaid and, and you owe tax, it's going to be a payable. But if a company is overpaid in taxes, as in it paid in more in taxes over the year than it owes, it would have an income tax receivable in the asset section of the balance sheet, as opposed to that payable in the liability section. So it could kind of go either way there. On the deferred tax side, uh, a deferred tax liability, which kind of sits in the liability section of the balance sheet, signifies that at this point in time, the company estimates a future tax liability related to certain items for which the accounting treatment of such item has differed from the tax treatment. Now, on the other hand, if the company was estimating a future tax benefit, given the difference in its accounting and tax treatment on certain items, then it would result in a deferred tax asset in the asset section of the balance sheet. 
And that concept of deferred tax accounting covered in detail in a previous podcast episode. So I'd recommend going back there for a deep dive on deferreds. However, one thing I'll mention is the deferred tax asset and or liability is also dedicated its own section of the tax footnote to provide kind of more detail regarding its makeup and and saying exactly what goes into each of these figures. And lastly, we have the cash flow statement. Is this something our listeners ought to be concerned with? Right. So the cash flow statement essentially summarizes all of the cash flows for a period. So that includes inflows or cash coming in and outflows or or cash going out. And and it breaks down by the type of activity the cash flow is related to. So it includes operating expenses, investing activities, or financing activities, typically it's those three buckets. And the cash flow statement includes the cash movements related to, well, income tax as well. So any payments going out or refunds coming in will kind of be reflected on the cash flow statement. Now, I'd I'd say just as a practical matter, um, typically this statement isn't a huge major focus of tax professionals, you know, as opposed to the income statement or balance sheet, which tax professionals are are, are much more concerned with. And that's really because for purposes of the tax items within this, within the cash flow statement, it's fairly straightforward and, you know, a bit simpler to calculate than, than the other components we've discussed. And I'll differentiate that from the income statement or balance sheet, which are obviously a lot more complex and involved here, really just focused on cash movements. Um, And for tax, that's really just kind of payments out or refunds coming back in. And with that breakdown between the three main financials you mentioned for the income statement and balance sheet, specifically that the income tax components of these, as in the provision for income tax and the deferred tax asset or liability, generally require further details and a breakdown of this information within the notes to the financial statements or the tax footnote. Can you give an overview of what goes into this footnote? Yeah, so... The tax footnote highlights kind of and provides further insight into all things income tax related that are included within the financials. So it really includes a variety of information, including kind of verbiage on a company's income tax position and items kind of materially impacting it. It includes financial tables, breaking down those items that we kind of just discussed and providing other details surrounding a company's income tax position. So the written details include quite a bit and are somewhat unique to particular companies. So it could change financial statement to financial statement. But in general, there's various written discussion. And that'll include things like discussion surrounding law changes, so any tax law changes that have a material impact on a company's income tax position. It'll include discussion or explanation of certain methodologies, so calculation methodologies, like how the deferred tax assets and liabilities are computed. And then it will also usually include a a brief narrative surrounding what comprises a company's uncertain tax positions, which we'll get into a little bit further later in the episode. But beyond the written details, and and really, honestly, most importantly, are the financial tables included within the tax footnote. So the first of these is is typically a high-level breakdown of the provision for income taxes line in the income statement. So this kind of allows the user of financial statements to learn more detail about what exactly makes up the provision for income taxes line on the financial statements, which, as we said, is kind of the crux of the provision where it gets its name. So usually this breakdown is kind of shown on a jurisdictional basis. So it'll kind of show it by bucket. So it'll break it out by federal, state, and international. And then within that breakdown, it'll also separate it apart by current and deferred. So it'll break it apart in those three buckets of of jurisdiction and then break it down by current and deferred. And you can kind of see, you know, how each jurisdictional component kind of makes up the current and deferred piece. 
And, and in terms of you know, presentation, it kind of follows the format of the income statement, where generally it'll show a three-year comparison period of the current year. So if we were at 1231-2020 financial, it'll show 2020, and then it'll show the prior two years as well. So in, in that case, it would be 2019 and 2018 for the comparison years. So then following this, after that kind of summary schedule, Next up is usually a table that provides the details surrounding the deferred tax asset or liability on the balance sheet. And this table provides kind of a detailed breakdown of the granular components that make up this deferred tax asset or liability. And that includes breaking out the material temporary, book the tax difference, net operating losses, credits, showing any valuation allowances. And we'll get into all that in a little bit. And then this schedule, since it supports the balance sheet, right, since the deferred tax asset or liability is shown on the balance sheet, it's going to follow the balance sheet format of being a two-year comparison between the current year. So once again, if we go back to our 2020 example, it'll show 2020 and then the immediate preceding year. So in this case, it would just show 2019, just those two years. So then up next is arguably the most important schedule within the tax footnote. And that's the rate reconciliation, the rate rec. And we have discussed this at length on other episodes, but this essentially serves to walk financial statement users from the statutory rate to the effective tax rate. And since it's kind of coming from the income statement, right, it's kind of, you know, income tax expense divided by pre-tax book income is sort of how you calculate the effective tax rate. Given that nature, it's shown on a three-year comparison basis because it's essentially akin to an income statement item. And I've stressed the importance of the effective tax rate and the rate reconciliation in the past, but this is generally the focal point. And usually, you know, if we're thinking about financial statements, this is kind of the first place that a tax professional or an investor who's really interested in in a company's tax division is going to go to learn about a company and their tax performance. So lastly, after all these schedules, the next thing that comes is a schedule regarding uncertain tax positions. So companies have to show their uncertain tax positions or unrecognized tax benefits known as UTPs or UTBs. And they have to show this in, in what's called a columnar roll forward. So we've touched upon the concept of UTPs kind of briefly, and they will be dedicated their own episode as well in the future. These are items where a company is indicating it is more likely than not, or not a greater than 50% probability of success, that if the company went forward with the tax position on its tax return, the IRS or another taxing authority wouldn't disallow or adjust such item on an audit. So in other words, the company is providing a roll forward from one year to the next over a three-year period of items that are uncertain or ones that may be challenged by the IRS or another taxing authority on audit. And if challenged, the company has less than a 50% confidence factor that the position would be sustained. So hence the name kind of uncertain. And we'll get into that a little bit more in this episode. And like I mentioned, we'll have another whole episode dedicated to UTPs as well. But those are kind of the key financial tables within the tax footnote as a whole. And most tax footnotes will cover those four key items. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, 
penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. Appreciating that summary of the different elements of the tax footnote. And with that summary, I think it makes sense to drill into uh, a couple of these items a little bit further. The first schedule you covered, the summary of the tax provision components seems fairly straightforward, but the deferred tax asset or liability table seems a little less straightforward. Uh, how do companies determine what exactly to disclose here? Generally, this does vary company by company, fact pattern by fact pattern, but many elements are consistent across the board. So first, all material individual components of the deferred tax assets and deferred tax liabilities should be disclosed and kind of broken out as a separate line item here. So this includes all material temporary book to tax differences, like accruals or reserves or deferred revenue or depreciation. And typically companies will go through their full kind of inventory of deferred tax items and they'll break these items out according to materiality, kind of as they see fit. And often companies will lump together similar, less material items. For example, they'll combine various accruals together, and sometimes we'll combine amortization with depreciation. So they'll kind of push together like categories, right? Similar categories that fit together. And then companies will often even have an other category, catch-all category, for the truly immaterial items. Uh, where they just essentially throw several items together and kind of capture them in one line. And, and this practice uh, of netting and what to break out versus not is really kind of part art and part science. And it's going to rely heavily on what was done last year, as, as the level of detail should be consistent year over year, given the comparison nature of the schedule, right? We show last year and we also show this year. And then also it's going to depend on the financial statement auditor, because they're going to need to kind of sign off on the financials and the presentation of such they're going to need to ensure that there's enough detail there to give the financial statement user a clear picture of a company's tax position. But also, you know, there shouldn't be too much detail as well, because that may just be overkill. It might not be necessary. You don't need to show all the immaterial items kind of broken out separately. And then companies will also kind of go through a similar analysis on their net operating losses, their NOLs and their tax credit carry forwards. You know, once again, breaking out those material items and then lumping together those kind of less material items or even putting some of them, if they're very immaterial, into that other category. And it's important to note that companies will always show the deferred tax assets and deferred tax liabilities separately in the footnote. So even though these are netted on a jurisdictional basis within the balance sheet itself, so they're netted based on jurisdiction. So we could have a U.S. jurisdiction, a foreign jurisdiction, state jurisdictions, and the netting will depend on how that jurisdictional breakdown is made up. So that'll depend, that'll be on the balance sheet. But even so, on the footnote, we're showing all the DTAs and DTLs broken out separately. So we don't have to really net out within the footnote. We're showing kind of more granular detail here. So for example, even if you have just the DTA on the balance sheet, you're going to see DTAs and DTLs within the footnote generally, because usually a company has both categories and then they'll engage in netting for the kind of core balance sheet presentation. And, and then the last thing to note is within the DTA section, 
Generally, companies will have a line to indicate if there is any uh, valuation allowance here to offset the gross DTA as well. So that's kind of the deferred tax footnote in a nutshell. It will be those kind of different elements. For the rate reconciliation schedule within the footnote, I know we've covered the schedule in depth in previous episodes, and I understand it's a walk from the statutory rate to the effective tax rate and is presented on a three-year comparison basis. But can you provide some further insight or any common practices companies use to present this schedule? Right. So we, we've spoken about the rate rec uh, in depth on, on other podcast episodes. And in particular, we have one episode kind of exclusively focused on the rate rec that, that I would recommend listeners tune into. Just as a refresher, this is really the kind of the key schedule that folks put a lot of weight into when it comes to the tax provision. One that people home in on when they're trying to understand a company's income tax position. And that's because the schedule shows all of the material rate drivers and explains how a company ends up going from their statutory rate, so in the U.S., 21%, to that effective tax rate that we've spoken about kind of at length. And, and interestingly, though, the, the schedule could actually be presented in a few different ways. So it could be shown as percentages, where you start at 21% if you're a U.S.-based company, and then you work your way to the effective tax rate, showing all your rate drivers. Or it could be shown as whole numbers, where you start at, at pre-tax book income multiplied by that 21%, and you get to that tax expense. And then you work your way down to your total true tax expense or the provisions for income taxes. Or it could be shown as both, where you show both the numerical values of each rate driver and also the impact on the rate of each component. So kind of having the whole numbers and the rates. So a presentation does vary there. And another item to note kind of as far as presentation is similar to the deferred schedule. This schedule is not extremely detailed. And companies will lump items together and present only really the material items. Now here, as a rule of thumb under the applicable GAAP and IFRS guidance, companies are generally required to break out rate drivers as their own separate line item if they impact the effective tax rate by 5% or more. It's kind of the rule of thumb there, 5%. And if, if it's under 5%, the items could generally be lumped together with other items or even thrown in that other line item category, similar to as we discussed kind of on the deferred schedule. But if an item impacts the rate by 5% or more, it kind of merits its own line item. And that's generally you know, a requirement where it, it would need its own line item since it is material. And you know, th- this exercise yeah. kind of is, is part art and, and part science, right? But one that tax professionals should be in tune with when presenting the rate rec. And companies, of course, really need to give the requisite level of detail required, but they also don't want to overshare. So it's kind of finding that balance and you know, right. making sure that they're following the rules, right? For the rate rec, they're following that 5% rule. Then. But also, you know, they're, they're finding the right balance and, and they're also kind of mirroring what they did last year. You want the detail to be relatively consistent year over year. With regard to the uncertain tax position schedule, I understand the format being a three-year comparison period presented and how one period's ending balances rolls forward to the current year beginning balance. Uh, but I am a bit unclear on how exactly these balances change from year to year. Sure. So in walking from the beginning balance in a particular year to the ending balance, the schedule will show additions or new uncertain tax positions where a new position is taken that is not more likely than not to be, upte- to be upheld upon audit. Or a previous position that was not considered uncertain before, but is now. So it could be an old position that you took, and now you consider it uncertain, so now it needs to get added. And then it's also going to show decreases as well. 
So items previously considered UTPs that are considered to be no longer uncertain given a reversal in position or a settlement with a taxing authority like the IRS that closed that position out and settled it, or finalized it. You could also have decreases related to lapses of statute of limitations, which is essentially legal jargon saying that taxing authorities have a certain window to inspect a company's tax returns. So in the U.S., generally about three years, and, and uh, states and foreign companies, it's usually a little bit longer, like four to five years. Um, but, there, but there's a window where taxing authorities could essentially uh, audit companies, audit companies' tax returns. And, um, and basically, once that window passes, uh, the, the expression is that the statute of limitation closes. And then, you know, essentially, companies' tax positions can't be adjusted from there. And when that happens, essentially previous UTPs, so previous uncertain tax positions that you put up as a company, you could essentially start taking down. That period is something, uh, the statute of limitation applies to individual returns as well as corporate returns. So that's a concept throughout the tax law, but it's one that's really important on uncertain tax positions because if a company is saying that they have a position that, that has that uncertainty that they need to accrue a liability for because they're not sure that they're going to be able to get the tax benefit, and then that statute of limitation lapses, given the nature of the rules and the fact that a taxing authority now can't examine their tax return because it's been you know, past that statute, then it's a nice benefit for a company because they get to take that UTP liability down. So that's where this kind of uh, footnote schedule becomes really important. It's kind of tracking all the comings and goings within this UTP schedule. For most, company, there's com- for most companies, there's commonly items coming on and, and items coming off. And similar to the deferred in that matter where you're tracking on a year-to-year basis and it's something that, that companies are, are very focused on and that in- investors are interested in. And then even taxing authorities are interested in when they're looking at financial statements because this is where companies kind of have to disclose where their uncertain tax positions are, which obviously taxing authorities would be interested in because that means that they're filing a position on their tax return that has inherent uncertainty. So that's just a, a little primer on uncertain tax positions and, and the footnote with regard to what's shown there. And we'll get more into UTPs on a future episode as mentioned, but I think those are the main schedules that kind of go into a tax footnote there, Matt. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. 
We want to thank Howard for joining us on this very informative discussion. If you like today's show, you're going to love the other podcasts in Cross-Border Solutions Tax Podcast Suite. That's the Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit and the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's the Fiona Show Tax Provision, and we'll keep you up to date on the latest in tax provision. My name is Matthew DeMello, and they let me host, edit, and engineer this podcast. Stephen Markow is our associate producer and wrote today's script. Mary Lynn Mitchumstrom is our executive producer. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.